Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. Just had a rich dialogue with uh, Benny Thompson, chair of the January 6th House Select Committee. Let's keep talking politics now with Jonathan Martin, author and senior political reporter at Politico. Jonathan, Happy New Year, my friend. It's been a long time. How are you, sir? It has, Tavis. Happy New Year to you. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice, man. Yes, let, me, let me just jump right in. I want to pick up on what Benny Thompson and I were just talking about, and then we'll move, sure. it, move through some other things. We were just talking about the, the mess that is this 2024 presidential race. Of course, that's a big mess. Uh, but this yeah. notion that state after state is having their say on whether he should be or should not be on the ballot, he, of course, being Donald Trump, at some right. point, the Supreme Court's got to get involved in this. Benny Thompson, nor I, uh, neither he nor I are holding our breath and what that's going to look like. But what's your read about the role that yeah. the court will have to play and when they will have to play it as these states are coming up with decisions all over the map on this question? Well, I think I think it is inevitable. I think uh, Congressman Thompson is, is right that the court is going to weigh in here. That they, we're just not going to have a patchwork uh, in this country where some states are going to have the, the likely Republican nominee on the ballot and some states aren't. I mean, I think it's a matter of when, not if, before the Supreme Court weighs in here. Uh, I don't cover the court, but my guess is that they, uh, they, they would overrule these states that have thrown Trump off the ballot. Uh, I don't know if it would be unanimous, but I think that's where this is going. Uh, and I think it's a matter of, uh, uh, like I said, when, not if. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's some of the stories I want to get to and make the most of our time sure. here. Let me just go in, in no particular order with this first. I feel like, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like I'm looking at a Jeopardy board with political topics. Uh, we'll, we'll start with this for 500. Uh, so the Speaker of the House, uh, the stuff you do cover, yeah. of course. Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Yeah. Uh, today, likely right about now as I'm talking, I'm not sure. But he, the Speaker of the House, and 60 of his Republican cohorts are at the U.S.-Mexico yeah. border today. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to make a statement, and they want to squeeze Democrats. What are they squeezing them yeah. for, and what statements are they making? I mean, we've been used to these buses sure. with these migrants going up north. We've been we've been seeing yeah. that crazy story for months now. But now yeah. the Speaker and Republicans are literally at the U.S.-Mexico border today. What's the point of all that? I think that this is sort of the first, uh, the first um, posturing in the new year from the House Republicans who are trying to get the best possible uh, border deal that they can get uh, out of Congress to President Biden's desk. I mean, I, look, there's there, there's almost certainly going to be some kind of an agreement that gets money to the Ukrainians and the Israelis, um, but it's not coming out of the Congress until there's also some language. Uh, in there, uh, you know, toughening up the border. That's what the congressional Republicans want, especially uh, in the House, Tabith. Uh, and I think that uh, this is their effort, led by the Speaker, to sort of draw attention to the challenges on the border to strengthen their negotiating hand back in D.C. Mm-hmm. Is there any chance um, in your mind, uh, Jonathan, that yeah. we will see any sort of meaningful, and I guess it depends on how one defines meaningful, but meaningful yeah. immigration reform in short order? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I, I think that the challenges uh, on the border uh, politically strengthen the Republicans' hand to do a kind of enforcement uh, and only enforcement approach. Uh, and I think Biden politically is now in a place where, you know, he, he's suffering on the issue and, and probably is going to agree to whatever compromise that that gets to his desk uh that does toughen the board i think the idea of doing a big bargain where you strengthen enforcement in exchange for legalizing you know some some group of 
of, of migrants, whether it's the Dreamers or whether it's a broader cohort, I just I, I have a hard time seeing that under the, these conditions. So if the Republicans have their way and they're successful yes. at forcing the president's hand to do something yes. on immigration that he really doesn't want to yes. do, he'll hold his nose and do it because he has no choice. If he wants money for the yeah. other things that matter to him, make that Ukraine, yeah. Israel, et cetera, et cetera. He holds his nose. Yeah. He signs it. And, and and then the question becomes the policies on the books. But how does that play politically in the election yeah. cycle? So my question is, if yeah. the Republicans do that, Biden is forced to go along with it. Who wins politically when it comes to the Latino vote? Well, I mean. Uh, that's the great question in the aftermath of Biden signing whatever bill eventually lands on his desk is, does Biden sort of lower the temperature on the immigration issue politically for himself mm-hmm. and have the capacity to say, look, uh, we actually are addressing this. I got X number of, of Republican votes and, and we're toughening the border. Does that get him any political credit? And is that political credit that he gets outweighed by the backlash that he draws from his own core voters who say, you didn't do anything uh, but the enforcement side. Mm -hmm. You didn't get any kind of legal status for folks who are already in the country. And and so all you're doing is stick and there's no carrot. And so now uh, we're not going to help you out. You know, we're going to stay at home. We're not going to volunteer. That, Tavis, is the great question. Mm -hmm. Is is there more benefit than, than, than backlash for Biden? on signing this this deal. That leads me straight into this, uh, Jonathan Martin, and that is, uh, yeah. you cover these issues every day, uh, and this, yeah. is a, this is a broad question, so paint the way you want to paint here. you got a canvas here. Sure. But what, what fissures, yeah. what fissures are you seeing right now as we start out 2024, headed toward November, what fissures are you seeing within the Democratic Party? Sure. Look, I think that the, um, uh, the most obvious one, and I think, potentially the most politically perilous one for Biden, Tavis, is the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Look, I think historically uh, the Democratic Party has been very closely aligned with Israel, um, has been a calling card for Democratic politicians for generations. And I think that that is really being called into question now. And you see the generational divide in the party with older Democrats, Biden being the most obvious one, but also people like Schumer and Pelosi, who are much more Mm -hmm. pro-Israel, younger Democrats who um, are are more skeptical of of Israel's intentions, certainly under the Netanyahu government. And I think that, you know, if, if Biden is not able to get some kind of resolution in the Middle East before the election, it poses an enormous threat to him, not because younger Democrats are suddenly going to put on a red hat and be for Trump, but because they're going to stay home or they'll find a third party, whether it's Cornell West or Jill Stein or Bobby Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, when we come forward, watching my clock here, I don't want to be unfair to you and give you 20 seconds to answer this. I want to ask the flip side of that. What fissures are you seeing within the GOP? And I'm saying this somewhat tongue-in-cheek because I'm not sure there are any fissures there. And what I mean by that is that everybody seems to be lock, stop, you know, lock, lock, stock, and barrel in line with 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 Trump. Of course, I know that's not the case. Uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, if I just read, qualified for this next debate. Uh, so there, there, there are two of them at least still standing. Chris Christie is still trying to, to do his thing on the on the edges. But I wonder what the fissures are that you see inside the Republican Party. And then I want to ask you when we come forward about Bob Menendez. We saw the story weeks ago, late last year. 
Democratic senator out of New Jersey, been in trouble before, got himself in trouble again uh, with doing stuff, they say, for Egypt. Now they filed new charges yesterday and indict him on doing stuff for Qatar. And yet Democrats have not backed away from Bob Menendez. I ain't stuck on stupid. They've got a narrow majority in the Senate. But can the Democrats continue to stand by and not demand that Menendez step aside? Does that hurt them? In the long run, uh, come election season, when Republicans start running commercials everywhere about Democrats standing by criminals in office. You see the point. Jonathan Martin right now on Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love, this is Tavis Smiley. Sounds Sounds different, huh? This is Tavis Smiley. All right, Jonathan, we talk about the officials on the Democratic Party. Before I move to the officials on the other side, let me just ask a quick question about Democrats. How long yes. um, can they stand by Bob Menendez before they yeah. get, 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 get just get slapped with the fact that you're standing by criminals? Right. <laughs> well, let me take the Menendez question first, and sure. then I'll sort of uh, pivot to the Republican fissures. I mean, look, I, I, I think the Menendez issue uh, can be contained here uh if if he eventually resigns now typically um politicians who are facing corruption charges will oftentimes resign because they can get a better plea deal with prosecutors um uh if they resign their seat that's sort of of often a bargaining chip that prosecutors use so i think that that helps them uh if he doesn't go away if he tries to run for re-election which he's threatening to i think it's more of a mess tavis for, Mm -hmm. for democrats that could last much of this year um on the broader issue of the republican party there's two ways to look at it. Look, like one is, as you pointed out, there's not a lot of fissures because they're mostly bowing to Trump now as sort of their their likely third uh, third consecutive uh, nominee here uh, in a row, uh, which is extraordinary if you step back and think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, certainly, it's his party. If you think about it differently, they're cleaved by uh, Trump. Look, Trump has reshaped the Republican Party, has chased out a good number of people, not made them either Democrats or independents, and those who have stayed in that don't like him are looking at the possibility of not voting for their party's nominee. Uh, you know, once again, there are people, I'll throw you a name, George W. Bush, for example, mm-hmm. a former president, who are about to go a decade Tavis not having voted for the nominee of their party for president. So mm-hmm. I think it depends how you look at it with Republicans and Trump. Those who have stayed are obviously certainly for him, and they they bow. But he's also fractured the party significantly. Right? Part of the reason why Biden's president today is because Trump chased out so many people from the old party. Yep. Um, you, you, you made the point. It's a powerful point, and we, we don't spend enough time talking about it. But how do you read— that he is at the moment the presumptive nominee of his party. Um, He will likely be the nominee later this summer. But how do you read that if he pulls this off, he will have been the Republican nominee for three consecutive election cycles? It's extraordinary. And it's it's such a a departure from what we're used to in this country. And I think that's why it's so profoundly uh, shocking because, you know, this is supposed to happen in other countries, right, where democratically elected leaders try to stay in power, they change the rules, they try to come back to power after being exiled. Um, we just haven't had it in this country, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and I think that that's why it's so jarring to have somebody effectively 
take over a party mm-hmm. and then try to keep their grip on it despite having lost an election and, and trying to overturn the results of the election, yeah. paying no penalty for that within the party itself and seemingly poised to cruise to the nomination uh, of that party uh, mm-hmm. once again, I think it tells you a lot about his grip on power. It tells you a lot about how malleable the Republican Party is. And I think, frankly, it tells you a lot about the American voter and the fact that we're not so different in this country from those other countries that we thought this kind of thing happened. To. Yeah, that's a scary thought right there. That latter point is a scary thought, but I digress. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Jonathan Martin, we'll close with him where we began today's program. And we ain't done yet. we got an hour to go. But I want to go back to the beginning of today's show and get Jonathan's take on the victory lap that Republicans are taking, given what they've done to the president of Harvard and the president of UPenn. We'll talk about that with Jonathan Martin when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive, progressive. unapologetically blind. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory, expand of, ideas? Your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. More of Johnson Martin of Politico coming your way right now with the three minutes I have left in this hour. So, uh, Jonathan, we started our program today talking yeah. about the, the big news, of course. Um, Claudine Gay resigns at Harvard. Uh, and about, yeah. I just want to probe you on this particular slice of that story. Uh, I tell you stuff that you already know. This story, this narrative was driven by the New York Post, as you know, uh, owned by yeah. Rupert Murdoch. Um, this yeah. story was driven by Miss Stefanik out of New York, who, who was asking those tough questions during that hearing. Uh, right. And so the the, the, the GOP uh, is taking a victory lap here. And this concerns right. a lot of people, certainly African-Americans, because they sure. see this as just another assault, another attack on any sort of uh, black agency or black leadership, right. or black advancement. Yes. Say say nothing of right. the book ban and all the other stuff that we have to deal with from time to time. Um, po- politically, how are you reading yes. the, the GOP, again, doing a victory sure. lap on this issue? Well, look, I, I think that you have to take these things individually. I think for Elise, Elise Stefanik, certainly this is a sort of crowning achievement for her that she wants to use this to elevate her stature in Congress and potentially even get on Trump's uh, Trump's ticket here if she can this year. And I think she, she wants to show that she's a, you know, a fighter, a scrapper. Um, look, I think the broader issue here for the right is uh, – Democrats, Tavis, are unified in opposition to Trump. Mm-hmm. There's not a similar person that, that, that unifies the right. But what, the, what does unify the right is this contempt for what they see as the real or perceived excesses of the left, right? Mm-hmm. That is the only unifying element left because Trump has divided uh, the, the party in a way that we discussed a minute ago. And so I think that this for the right is something that they could rally around. Here's, you know, they see liberal hypocrisy. And so they say, this is something that unifies us. This is something that we can get. It's a scalp. Uh, Everybody in our coalition, the Trump haters and the Trump lovers love this. And so for them, it's something that they can rally to. And if we're being totally honest, it also it lets them put off for another day that matter of the fact that Trump is the leader of the party and is about to be the, the nominee for a third straight cycle. Mm-hmm. Here's something that we can talk about that we they, they all sort of agree on uh, that is not Donald Trump. And I think that that's why you see so much energy around this with that. Uh, finally here, um, I, I think I heard you correctly. Uh, it is your view 
yes or no that uh, Ms. Stefanik has now squarely put herself on Donald Trump's short list for VP? List. I don't know if it's short, Tavis. Yeah. <laughs> 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 fair, enough. Say less, uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I. I don't. I don't know how long the list can be because he got a lot of a lot of folk he doesn't like, uh, and so I. I don't know. Um, I mean, at one point I thought Nikki Haley may be on the list, and she still may be, for all I know. But he is very unforgiving, as you know, about things said he about is. him, even if it makes sense for her to be the running mate. We shall see. Who right. knows? Who knows? Who knows? After Pence, his criteria is going to be loyalty. loyalty 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 because he does not want to have a repeat of what happened on january 6 2021 where in his hour of need you know so i totally agree and that's why i think nikki haley ain't on the list no more but i digress yeah. on that point for now jonathan martin the author and senior political reporter at politico jonathan thanks for coming on we'll do it again my friend all the best to you look forward to it thanks Tavis. Thank, happy new year thank you happy new year more of Tavis smiley when we come forward